Hi there, this is Cameron Lundy at USH Med Student. I have two medical students with me here today on the very last day and moments of the rotation they have. Uh, Devin, you've been here before. Do you want to start with introductions? Yeah, I'm Devin Bourne. I'm a fourth year medical student planning on going into family medicine. It's been a fun rotation here. It was great to have you back. Uh, did you learn anything that might help you in family medicine? Oh, yeah, loads. <laughs> <laughs> loads. It, it, just to uh, remind everybody, Devin did a podcast series on lithium that is remarkably high yield and certainly worth listening to. You did a great job, Thank both you. on the rotation and with uh, the podcast. Thank you. Now, Jessica, you have not introduced yourself before. Um, not as the lead podcast person, I guess I could say. I helped with the Lithium podcast, and I was here for the burnout, but this is my first time doing the lead. So, so tell us a little bit more about yourself than you did in the previous podcasts. Okay, so I am a third-year student at Rocky Vista University. I wish I could tell you right at the second what I'm interested in going into, <laughs> but I'm still pretty open to the idea of a variety of different specialties. Um, I've really enjoyed my time in psychiatry. I thought it was very interesting and looking forward to seeing how I can use what I learned here in my different rotations and how maybe that foundation will change how I approach everything else. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited. I guess if I had to note one thing that I loved about this rotation was it was really important to focus on patient autonomy no matter their cognition level, and I love that. I thought it was really important for me to learn that. So that speaks to the idea of collaborative care, right? yes. patient-directed uh, care, individualized treatment plans, those kinds of things. Oh yeah. I think those are sometimes hard to think about in a setting of uh, involuntary patient treatment, which is yes. the case at a state hospital. Um, but I'm glad that we're that you're saying that we're trying to do that. And, uh, obviously, I think we have a lot of room for progress. But that you're seeing it, I, I think, makes me very, very happy. Yeah, it's been really cool. I'm glad you saw that. Now, tell us about uh, the topic. How did you? So today's topic will be generalized anxiety disorder. Right? Yes. Uh, how did you come to this topic? So, I mean, if I'm downright straight to it, I think majority of my life I've struggled with anxiety. It's something that I don't, I've never gotten the criteria diagnosis, and we're going to go into the criteria, but it's something that, it's a phrase, kind of like bipolar and depression, you hear people throw around a lot, but the actual diagnosis has some pretty specific criteria, and so nailing down what you're throwing around, like you shouldn't just throw around phrases. And sure, you can experience anxiety, but the actual diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder does have some some specifics you need to to meet in order to be treated for it effectively. Generalized anxiety disorder, anxiety. This is a condition that has a long descriptive history. Yes. Um, take us back to. How far back are we going? I mean, in this paper, it talks about 350 BC so right, <laughs> at so, one point. So which paper is that? So this is the Croak paper. That's the last name. I don't think I'm saying it right. But it's the history of generalized anxiety disorder as a diagnostic criteria. Now this was, I, I noticed that a lot of the articles that you looked at came from a specific, uh, it came from a journal, translational something or another. Uh, yes. Uh, Transitional, but these are all translational articles trying to move bench research into practice. Yes. That's the idea of translational research. And this was a, a whole, like, uh, month's edition dedicated to the topic of generalized anxiety disorder. You had some additional information that you brought in from other places, but it seemed like this was as good a summary as there was. Yes, and I think that's why I focused on this. And throughout the podcast, we'll notice 
why it's kind of in this transitional phase and this push for more information, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Sounds good. So start with the history. Let's go back to somewhere around 350 BC. Yes. And so... Or BCE, before the common area, is that how? Yeah, kind of like that. So we go back to this time and the first wording that we can kind of get about what we assume they were talking about with anxiety is more associated with fear often and it's called panophobia. And panophobia is this phrase that we see in like the old Oxford English Dictionary clear back into 350 BC. And interestingly enough, they think it might have come from the fear of the god Pan. And so pan, panic, all this type of stuff comes and it was funny in the, the paper it says, uh, pan was used to designate panic fright because noises heard in the mountains and valleys were attributed to pan. So um, pan is the, sh the shepherd god and the cattle. And so these shepherds, and they'd hear these noises in the mountains and they get so anxious about it. And so they think that's kind of where it came from. So I thought that was where panic came from. But I, I thought I understood something slightly different, which was panophobia was the fear of everything. This constant yes. worry about all of these things that are going on and pan is everything, right? Yes. And phobia is fear of everything. Uh, so so I, in any case, there was also pantophobia, yes. panophobia, and uh, one other pan, something or another. Yes. So, so there's a lot of pan. Lot. There's a lot of pan going on. Yeah, and there was, you'll see until about 1980, there's a lot of mixing between panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. There wasn't a clear, distinct split of the two until the DSM-3, actually. So the so. DSM-1 and 2 maintained that overlap. Yep. Why did it split? What happened? They eventually saw there is a different in onset and timing. And we talk about timing a lot when it comes to psychiatry and how important it is this timeline. And they noticed that panic was something that was like sort of an instantaneous momentary fear. And when we talk about panic disorder, it's this panic attack that comes on really quickly, very severe versus anxiety which is this like ongoing long suffering every single day you get some sub level of symptoms and they started to realize this isn't the same thing maybe some of the bodily functions are similar but it's definitely not the same thing yeah so so dsm1 and 2 kind of has these overlapped diagnosis yeah. and then the dsm3 pulls them apart yes tell us a little bit more about the natural history of, uh, of this diagnosis? What, what, so, how, does it, uh, how does it evolve? Maybe I should have you describe the criteria first. Yes, I can describe the criteria. So I guess going back a little bit, so we have this panophobia, pantophobia, then there was this phase where it was called neurasthenia. 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 And then we get to Freud, who calls it angsta neurosa, which in German is like fear neurosis or anxiety neurosis. And he, of course, like Freud would do, he attributed it to an accumulation of sexual excitation that could not find discharge during incoitus. So we go through the, the Freud phase, and then that's quickly replaced, and then we get it into the DSM-1 and 2. And then by the 3, we're getting, okay, this is different. And so the current criteria in the DSM-5 is, let me pull this up. So it's excessive anxiety and worry. So they use the phrase apprehensive expectation a lot. That's sort of like the ground levels for anxiety. Occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of events or activities. So we have these sub-criteria. The individual finds it difficult to control the worry. The anxiety and worry are associated with three or more of the following symptoms. So here are some symptoms. Restlessness or feeling keyed up, 
on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or mind going blank at times, irritability, muscle tension, and sleep disturbances. And then you have to differentiate it from a substance or obsessive compulsive disorder, panic, another phobia. So that is our current criteria for generalized anxiety disorder. And uh, timelines that are often important, we've talked about that, has yes. to be at least six months, has to be a pervasive worry about everything, everything around. Everything in life. <laughs> it's not like you can say, okay, well, I'm going to fix your worry about turtles, <laughs> yeah. because then something else will replace that worry. Yep, it just constantly so the, something else. So the focus is, of treatments is not to try and solve individual worries, but to solve the way that somebody worries. Yes, exactly. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit when we talk about neural connectivity, maybe. Yes. Very cool. Um, this condition uh, goes away, right? You, you have it once and it disappears? Uh, actually, that's not true. <laughs> and so that's kind of the bummer about it is it talks about in the epidemiology of it that a lifetime prevalence is about five to nine percent of an, of individuals could experience this. It's two to one higher in women, surprisingly. Um, one third risk of developing GAD is genetic. We'll go on to talk about some of those in a little bit. Um, it's waxing and waning and remission rate is pretty low. And so you kind of see this onset from a paper I read. Um, it starts around adolescence, puberty, and then it kind of goes throughout your life in this ebb and flow of moments where it gets really intense, then it can flow back down. And so we get this lifelong diagnosis, I think. I once read a very interesting paper that talked about the onset. I think it was based on the Kessler data, which is the National Comorbidity Survey replication. I think that was done, what, somewhere around 2000, maybe? Yeah, that seems about right. I remember reading something about that. And so some of our best data comes from that study, and there were some articles that followed that at some point talking about exactly what you described, this onset in the adolescence. But it also talked about how it seems to bring in a lot of comorbidity. Yes. Talk to me about comorbidity and how that affects the studies. Yes, and so it's actually, I think, what we can look back on in the history is this idea that anxiety is kind of found in a lot of different situations and so in the epidemiology it says it has a very high comorbid diagnosis with depression with depression and so a lot of times I think anxiety gets this sort of like shaft and you get this you give it a depressive diagnosis but it's not a mood disorder it definitely isn't it's not even listed in that category and so most of the time though you will see it with a co-diagnosis of a depressive disorder or some sort of mood disorder which interestingly enough even just thinking about our unit um i don't know if i can recall any individual who has generalized anxiety disorder is there do you find yourself diagnosing it pretty often or um i what a great question. You're putting yeah. me on the spot. I think I'm supposed to put people on the spot on this podcast, aren't it? So when I was in private practice, my feeling was the more I asked about anxiety symptoms, the more I saw those anxiety symptoms. And I think generally speaking, there seemed to be a difference between the fear-based anxiety disorders yes. and the non-fear-based anxiety disorders. And I think we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I became increasingly convinced that the more questions I asked my patients, the more I saw that pattern of onset around puberty of anxiety. And then over time, because it's very difficult to manage, comorbidity with depression. 
Yes. So, so my feeling was that most of the people that came to see me had both uh, depression and anxiety symptoms depending on their age. Yeah. And uh, that my younger patients maybe had cleaner diagnoses. Mm, okay. So, so they were either having more problems with depression or more problems with anxiety. Okay. Does that, and I think yeah. that fits with kind of the history, right? Yes, exactly. And that's what they see is as the time goes on, we kind of get this mixing of depression. And so that's interesting that you could pull from that personal experience. And treatment of this based on the criteria is first line is CBT plus or minus an SSRI or SNRI, which you kind of hear as the treatment for depression. And so there is this kind of crossing between how we treat it and how we don't. Now, panic disorder, you can in the moment give a benzodiazepine if you have that. It's not recommended to don't give do it. it. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> Dr. Rowney, don't do it. And you do not use it is not recommended for generalized anxiety. Right. So, so I think we had this discussion when we did have uh, panic disorder. I think there are benzodiazepines that have the FDA indication for the use of uh, for the use of panic disorder, but I think we talked about deprescribing of benzodiazepines, how challenging that is, yes. and how uh, e- even though there are test questions that allow you to use benzodiazepines, <laughs> yes. our, our feeling is... Uh, yeah, it's kind of like, maybe no. Maybe let's no. Not. Let's go everywhere else first, right? And, yep. But clearly, with generalized anxiety disorder, clearly... The, the most guidelines say stay away from this. And, and yes. I think the test questions and the principles that are tested on the shelf exams, on the practice, practice exams, also shy away from benzodiazepines for treatment of generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah, and I actually even just have a UWorld question pulled up right now, and the answer has benzodiazepines listed, like the answer options, but the correct answer is begin an SSRI and recommend CBT as the number one first line. So, so there's something very interesting. I was looking at, uh, I think we're talking about treatment now. Yes. Y- you've kind of addressed that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that simple, and yet it's not quite that simple. No. Uh, there were a couple of things I, I decided in preparation for this podcast to just do a quick PubMed search with a randomized control trial filter, and there were over 3,000 results. And the first <laughs> 40 had the following, the first 40 results had the following uh, treatments listed, L-threonine, Kava, Kava came up a lot, mindfulness, CBT, exercise, internet delivery of psychotherapy, uh, cannabidiol, passiflora, I don't know what that is, I've never heard of that, that chamomile, vortioxetine, and a number of other antidepressants or SSRIs or variations of SSRIs, Uh, valerian, RTMS, animal-assisted therapy, acceptance-based group therapy, and uh, azapriones, which I think is like buspar. So, I mean, mm-hmm. just, just in the first 40 you know, hits, there's like 15, 20 different kinds of therapy. Yes. And, and one of the challenges we have, and I'm, I'm gonna tackle this just a little bit, is uh, there, w- there was one other study that I saw that was very interesting. Uh, the uh, National Institute of Health, what it, no, it's not a National Institute of Health, it's the NIHCE in England. Uh, th- they're kind of like the standard of excellence the country and so what they wanted to do is look and see what do you give somebody who has failed uh, sort of like low intensity psychological interventions for uh, for uh, GAD uh, generalized anxiety disorder and so they have the option of cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, Zoloft 
also known as sertraline, right? Mm -hmm. Sertraline is the uh, generic name. And they intended to get 64 um, people in the sertraline arm, but everybody that had generalized anxiety disorder declined medication. Oh, so then we got that problem to deal so, with so, too. So I, th I think one of the things we read, and I think we're going to tackle this a little bit more now, is that even though uh, CBT and antidepressants, SSRIs more specifically, and maybe some SNRIs, seem to work pretty well at treating this, people who have generalized anxiety disorder really don't like taking uh, antidepressants because of the yeah. side effects. I'm not sure anybody really likes to take any medication, but this yeah. seems to be a hard sell in this setting. And uh, generally speaking, people have a tough time engaging in, th in psychotherapies. Yes. So a lot of people that have generalized anxiety disorder don't have a treatment for them that, that they are able to engage in easily, or we as uh, physicians have not yet figured out how to engage our patients more effectively in identifying strategies that would involve cognitive behavioral therapy and um, perhaps an SSRI, right? So, yeah. so there's this issue here. And not only is there kind of a, a lot of articles about treatments for GAD, there's not a lot of consensus on that. And there's oh, yeah. also kind of not a lot of consensus on what causes GAD, right? Yeah, and that's where we're gonna pull in Devin and talk about a couple of different things. Um, so we have three topics we're going to kind of cover, and a couple of them intermix. So we're going to talk about like where in the brain mm -hmm. that we see generalized anxiety disorder. Um, we're going to talk about a few biomarkers and then some gene-wide studies and genetics. So I think we could probably start by talking about the amygdala and this generalized concept about the amygdala. And so when you think about the amygdala, at least when I do, when I think about medical school, fear, anger, emotions, and stuff like that. So. Interestingly enough, there's been a lot of people that see this comparison between fear and anxiety, but they are separate. That's important. But they did see, studying the amygdala, that there is an association between having larger putamen amygdala along with individuals who are at a higher risk for GAD. So that's pretty interesting. Now, this isn't like lots of studies, right? This was no. one study, right? So when we were piecing together, I think there was... Uh, was it the Etkin article, which is the connectivity analysis, or was that the Gottschalk article? The uh, connectivity was the Etkin article. All right, so I think it was the Gottschalk article that looked at a lot of different ways that we're trying to conceptualize um, generalized anxiety disorder from looking at the brain, right? Yeah. Um, nope, he was the genetics. Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. So uh, let me try one. it again. So Etkin was the connectivity, and Moran, Moran article is the article looking at the structural findings and like where is this happening in the brain, right? Yeah. And so, so there's a lot of, perhaps we can back up just a little bit. So, so the amygdala, uh, if you get a test question, it's the four Fs, right? Yep. Fear, food, flight, and sex, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's that's the four Fs. And in this case, we're talking specifically about fear. Now, earlier we mentioned that generalized anxiety doesn't appear to be fear-based. Yeah. And yet there are some changes associated with the amygdala. And part of those changes, I, th I think, the connectivity analysis helped us understand this, is that um, the amygdala is sort of like the central control area. Yeah. And then there are a couple of uh, nuclei I think might be the right way to say this, that the uh, CMA, 
says, okay, I want you to do this, 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 right? And so, uh, if I understand correctly, in generalized anxiety disorder, or in other disorders, we see the amygdala in the fear-based disorders consistently more active or more gray matter, meaning more neuronal activity, maybe. Is that yes. a fair way of saying that? Yeah, and is that what you kind of saw as well, Devin? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, so there are like all of these different findings, like uh, maybe there's increased gray matter in the right putamen, which is mediated by childhood abuse potentially, right? So yep. there's these really weird interactions. Maybe there's uh, increased gray matter in the basal ganglial structures in untreated patients. Maybe there's increased right amygdala, 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 amygdala yeah. volume <laughs> yeah. in, in females. You know, it's, it's like, it's sort of like- All over the map. All over the map. So, so that's just the structural stuff, right? Yep. But then what happens if you go to fMRI? Yeah, so you get further down and you see this. I don't know if you want to hop in or anything about this. I don't want to take over, Devin. But <laughs> You're fine. Yeah, jump in. So tell us about fMRI. What happens with fMRI? Um, I did not read about the fMRI, actually. So let me I, was, I was reading more about the anatomy side. So the, let, then let me try and jump in on the fMRI okay, side yeah. then, because this was, I think this was the Moran article. So they said essentially, well, if you're looking at fMRI, which I think is both tensor imaging and a couple of other imaging states, and they said both emotional and resting, so there are important distinctions between these, then maybe you see, you know, the typical players, um, but it's not consistent there either, because if you look at children, you might get increased amygdalar activity maybe resting or maybe emotional state, yeah. but it, that's not necessarily the case in adults. Um, there's some activity in the, the anterior cingulate gyrus, the amygdala, medial, ventral, medial and ventral lateral prefrontal cortex. We're gonna come back to those, I think, in a little bit. And I mean, it, it just seems like there's this study after study after study, paradigm after paradigm after paradigm. Yes. And I think what was very difficult was making sense of the fMRI data until we got into the Atkin article. So yeah. I'm gonna set that aside for a moment. Now there's also not a lot of PET data. So if you look at uh, PET data, there's some interesting things that you can do with that. For example, even though we're gonna talk about genomic aspects of uh, catecholamines, if you actually look at the brain in people who have generalized anxiety disorder, they're able to see that uh, 5-HT sites don't change in the brain. They, mm -hmm. they, you have the same number of sites, but it does change in depression, yeah. which kind of speaks to one of the arguments we've talked about in preparation that, hey, these are two different conditions, right? Yes. Um, there might be some changes in GABA receptors in other parts of the brain. Um, if you look at uh, metabolic MR, which is a different way of looking at the brain, you see changes in N-acetylacetate, N I think, yeah. and creatinine ratios, depending on you know, different parts of the brain, you see really odd results. If you have responders with Paxil or paroxetine, you see that ratio go down. If you have responders with a glutamate, glutamate release inhibitor, that ratio goes up. We don't know what that means, right? Yeah. There, there's not analysis on, on how that fits together in the articles that we read. And then if you look at genetic biomarkers, this article mentioned those, the Moran article, but I think we'll look at those later in, mm -hmm. in a different article and the GWAS. And then the other thing that, that this article, the Moran article talked about was the neurochemical analysis, right? So you can look at the blood 
without looking at the brain and hope to find some sort of biomarkers in the blood that help you understand what's happening neurochemically. And there might be some changes in 5-HT blood binding in the blood and maybe not. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think in those of you who are listening, I think you kind of get this idea that there is so much left to learn about anxiety on the anatomical level as well as the cellular level. And the paper, let me get the last name. So I think it's Bob Bev, the mm-hmm. inhibition of the amygdala and anxiety circuitry paper. It talks about GABA receptors mm-hmm. and its subparts and how there's actually just like really little information yet to be studied on all of these subdivisions found within the amygdala in these parts where is it the GABA receptor itself, the whole thing? Is it a subpart of it that's up with it or is it modulating proteins? And so there's this question that lies still, like yes, the amygdala is part of it, but like what aspect of it? And I think that's this drive to, and at the end of this, the Babiv paper, it calls for, we need more research on this particular topic. Cause there's, I think he even says frighteningly low amount of studies. So it's yeah. surprising. Everybody said that over and over. Yes, they? exactly. I would add only one more thing about the neurochemistry. And, and I think some test questions address the issue of cortisol in depression, maybe. Yes. And, and one of the things that, again, stands out is that cortisol is not really changed in generalized anxiety disorder. So if you have, mm-hmm. if you have generalized anxiety disorder and a cortisol test comes back showing the indicated change, you can take that one off the list, right? Another yeah. area where we where we found this distinction between generalized anxiety disorder and what we call generalized anxiety, I'm sorry, depression and what we call generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah, so before we um, move on from the amygdala to a couple other topics, um, some sort of like pop culture pull in that I was gonna talk about. Um, if you have seen the documentary film Free Solo, it's about Alex Honnold and his journey to free climb El Capitan, the the face of it in Yosemite. And there's a part in the show, if you've seen it, you know he goes to neurologists and gets a brain MRI. And compared to an average individual, this person who, and throughout the film they just talk about, he's just not stressed out about this. He doesn't show any anxiety that he's going to free climb this crazy, like flat surface pretty much. And his amygdala doesn't fire as often. So while that is an interesting like little oh interesting there is an important distinction between fear and anxiety that's key for us to remember as we move on from the amygdala and that is fear is triggered by a real threat like a real tangible threat results in an acute and temporary response while anxiety is activated by diffuse a whole bunch of stuff less predictable threats and generates a long-lasting state of apprehension so fear is not the same thing as anxiety and the papers are saying yes can't figure out exactly what it is though. So uh, on that note, let's go ahead and move to the genetics. And I think Devin, this is where you you picked up uh, a lot of the discussion, right? Yeah, so I was looking into pretty much how can we screen and look for generalized anxiety disorder. Obviously with a lot of diseases, we have great ways to search for them. We can get an A1C and look for diabetes. We can do a colonoscopy to search for colon cancer. We can get a pap smear to look for cervical cancer. So is there some way that we can search for something that can tip us off? This person has general anxiety disorder or they're going to develop it down the road. So uh, the article I was looking at talked about three main subjects, anatomy, uh, genetics, and then neurochemical. Um, So we already talked about, yeah, enlarged amygdalas and putamens that are possible, but pretty impractical 
to start giving MRIs to everyone <laughs> yeah. and not even getting a definitive answer, just saying like, oh, maybe yours is bigger. You might end up with generalized anxiety disorder. So not not really a great way to go it, about it. And the reality is by you know, puberty, long, long after or long before we're going to be giving fMRIs or functional imaging of some sort or or uh, actually just a, a regular MRI, right? Because we're looking at volumes. We, we kind of know already, right? Exactly. We, we have this picture already. So the biomarkers then become a lot about how do we know if somebody's going to respond and how do we know whether it's generalized anxiety versus maybe depression, right? Exactly, yeah. So they, they looked at four major um, biomarkers or like what they were calling neurochemicals to possibly screen for it. So they looked at serotonin and various related molecules and metabolites. They looked at cortisol, which we've discussed. They also looked at CRP and then neurotrophic factors, which control you know, cell neuronal growth in the brain. And they could not find any correlation whatsoever. So every now and then they'd have an article that might, they're like, oh, this one points maybe in this direction and that one points in that direction. But then the next study completely contradicts it. It was and one of those things where in childhood, in adolescence, under 15, who are boys that play baseball, we found this signal. But then the, you know, the next study was like, but in 18-year-old boys that play baseball and have generalized anxiety, we found the opposite, right? That's kind of what yeah, it felt like. Exactly. These, these small groups just never... It never showed one way or the other on these on these signals. Correct. Consistently. And then it's pretty much the same story when we got to the genetic portion. So again, trying to find are there genes that predispose someone to developing this? But it was the same story of well, we'd find it in a certain population, but then when we looked for that gene in another population, it was non-contributory. Um, I read a bunch about one called Val sixty six Met that they were studying. And, but then they said they switched over and they started um, studying it in a Chinese population and it was zero correlation. And then they talked about <laughs> ones with different genders and then with different comorbid diseases. They talked about one where they were studying it in Italians who had diabetes and it was very, the genes were significant there. But then, yeah, they started looking at the generalized population, nothing. And so again, it's what, what do we have going on? We don't know. Maybe there is one we haven't found yet, but really it seems to be, okay, this is some sort of multifactorial um, system that we have going on leading to this. We can't point the finger at something really specific yet. I think one of the great takeaways from the discussion is generalized anxiety disorder is probably not one thing. Correct. Yeah. Right. In fact, I think, so, so Devin, you talked about looking at candidate genes and the challenges we've had with that. I think there are some relatively newer genome-wide association studies that have been I think one of the articles we had reviewed those. It's the Gottschalk. Gottschalk. Yeah, Gottschalk. Yeah. I can't see that. And I, That's yeah. an impressive name. I was thinking that maybe if I you know, could name my grandson that's coming along maybe today or tomorrow, I'd name him Gottschalk. Yeah, you could probably do that. <laughs> or Gottschalk. Yeah, and in that paper... Um, Gottschalk Onderdonk. Onderdonk yeah. was a painter, a Western painter. There you painter go. You could do it that way. way. I uh, speak German, and I always I butcher Gottschalk every time. <laughs> In any case, uh, neither here nor there. Sorry about yeah, that uh, no. diversion. Poor Devin's looking at us going, what have what I walked German, into? Yeah. So in this article, it's kind of like the same idea. We look at a couple genes, and they, this draws a f not significance towards anything but encouragement. That's kind of the encouraging at the end. And so the two encouraging hits are a THBS2 gene in the GWAS study and a CAMKMT gene. And those two were the ones that they found the most encouraging associations with. Um, just so we can kind of clarify more, the, the CAMKMT is a calmodulin gene. And 
calmodulin is associated with a lot of different pathways. And so which of the pathways is it? Is it every calmodulin pathway? We're not sure. And he kind of draws on that idea that, yes, we see it as a higher hit with these individuals, but it's which pathway with calmodulin. And then we have the THBS2, which I did a quick um, gene search about this one. And surprisingly enough, this one has been identified as something associated with intervertebral disc disease and back pain. So we see it hit a lot in GAD, and we see it hit a lot in back pain. So, but there is that aspect of anxiety criteria, criteria if I can speak correctly, where it talks about um, somatic symptoms and muscle tension. So maybe, you know. One of the things I thought was interesting about the GWAS studies was that, as far as I can tell, one of the ways they go about the data collection is not necessarily the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, but how those genes might tie to neuroticism. Yes, and so I have a definition. So I actually, when I was looking up neuroticism, I I read that and I was like, "Uh, I don't actually know what that is. So I looked it up and it's characterized as a broad personality trait dimension representing the degree to which a person experiences the world as distressing, threatening, and unsafe. So we kind of pull this idea of fear again into it, but you are neuroticism is this distressing, threatening, unsafe idea. Yeah. So interesting. So it's not it's not clear to me that we have actually even the way we're going about the GWAS studies this really clear picture for what we're choosing. Yeah, and I think yeah. this is what we talked. We can even bring it back in the beginning. It took so long for GAD to be separate from panic disorder, and we still get this comorbid crossover a lot with other disorders that I think we're still looking for that definitive here's exactly what it is and we're not going to mix it with depression or neuroticism or panic disorder and so it's uh devin there was a funny phrase in one of the papers that we talked about and what (laughs) could you remind us what it is so yeah they started referring to gad as the orphan disorder (laughs) it just is kind of out there on its own i thought one of the things interesting about the gotchalk article was that he made the case that there is some convergence in some of the other areas of genetics. So he talked about GWAS studies having THBS2 and CAMKMT, but he also talked about convergence of some other data, uh, like the imaging data showing imaging with one other field, and maybe it was uh, like PET or SPECT, but uh, 5-HTT, 5-HT1A, MAOA, BDNF, even though the, the chemical, the neurochemical, BDNF stuff hasn't really panned out right, and we haven't been able to see these uh, quite so clearly alone. He talked about gene and environment studies, right, where we're seeing some shakeout, where if you have, for example, we talked about the childhood trauma. Yes. So so the environmental plus the gene may be leading to this condition, and there are a couple of genes leading to that. And again, we see things like MAOA show up, COMT, 5-HTT, and then a couple that weren't there before in PSRI and CRHR1 and RGS2. And interestingly enough, most of those, other than uh, the monoamine oxidase A, show up on pharmacoutcomes. So if you're looking at the way uh, medications seem to affect the condition, uh, acting on certain levels, if I understand that correctly, then then there are other genes that start showing up. So, So in any case, there's a lot of candidate genes out there, but I don't know that we saw anything that, that 
helped us understand how those candidate genes might explain generalized anxiety or what that pathway might be. Yeah, and they also had a moment there where they're talking about SNPs and uh -huh. the inversion polymorphism on chromosome 8, and that was kind of showing up a lot, but again, that was kind of more towards the neuroticism, and so we saw something associated with a SNPs in chromosome 8, but like whether again, that's generalized of, anxiety or whether it's fear is not as clear to us at least. Yes. Maybe that's to the study, the researchers, and maybe to them maybe that, that neuroticism means actually is code word for GAD, but that's something that wasn't obvious to us. Yeah. Okay. Um, there were also some interesting studies being done about microRNA. Yes. Um, Peripheral express, expression of microRNA. Mm -hmm. But where those microRNA came from or what they did. Yeah. We still have a lot to learn about microRNA, and so that was kind of like the pull from the article, I felt, is that they said this is like promising and we're interested to see where this goes, but we still got to figure out all what the aspects. Means. Yeah, what it means. What does microRNA lead us to? You know, where's, so. what's it in, what's it, what, what is the proteome that follows that, so to speak, right? Exactly. I don't think we knew that. Uh, I, the article that I probably liked best was the Etkin article. Now, this is a fairly old article. It's a connectivity article. I struggle immensely with these uh, types of articles. I am very, very challenged visual, visual spatially. And so the idea of putting uh, things in space together and then having, in my very caveman brain, tubes running from those areas from like, you know, from the amygdala to another place. It's just a, you know, it's just like, here's box A, I have a tube running from box A to box B. And to put those in, you know, anyway, I've made my point, yeah. right? Yes. So, so I really struggle with that, but I thought that they did a good job explaining this. I think, first of all, they made the case that the amygdala does not act the same way in generalized anxiety disorder as it does in the fear-based disorders like PTSD, social anxiety, and specific phobia. I thought that was a good first step. Mm -hmm. To me, that was the, the most clear thing out of everything, which is generalized anxiety is not a fear diagnosis. Yep, and that's sort of what we had talked about before. Yep, and then I think the next thing that came up was, so we wanted to do a study to see exactly how the amygdala responds and they they looked at this uh, those three different nuclei and how the BLA is what they called that right and yep. how the CMA uh, directed those and whether there were hot pathways cold pathways right to kind of see see if they could break the model down more clearly into you know, maybe this is a hypoactive or this is a hyperactive and there was a little bit of that but it didn't seem like they felt like that was the answer at the end of the day no I think they felt like there's just a lot of interconnectivity changes it's somewhat different but it's not like uh, it's not like when we think about you know the amygdala does this and you get the four F's it, it, it was a little more mixed right it's sort of like maybe the amygdala just isn't quite working the way it's supposed to yeah as opposed to it's overactive or underactive it's not this like binary thing yeah so it talks about how it can like even sometimes signal to the cerebellum and the BLA and so there's this idea that it's kind of like this crossroads point of where it should be sending signals to different aspects of the brain and we think potentially one of these signals could be associated with generalized anxiety disorder. Which one? Not sure yet. And I think that was sort of like the groundswork of the most when I read about this disorder is they have a lot of great foundational knowledge. We just haven't pinpointed which pathway, which gene yet. Which receptor, what developmental yes. kind of thing happened. The one thing that I thought was perhaps most interesting about this article, though, and this seemed to be kind of 
in, in the title, it's sort of like, oh, but we found that people who have generalized anxiety disorder that is less intense have this really strong pathway between the amygdala and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And we think it is compensatory. Yes. And I think the idea is that you can use your frontal lobes to kind of tell your amygdala, settle down. Yes, and that's sort of where the concept of combining SSRIs with CBT is the best outcomes and all the research points like the best outcomes for generalized anxiety is this continued therapy and kind of using your frontal lobe and this pathway to you can't get rid of it right you can't get rid of it but maybe identify how you can deal with it and maybe hey can you calm down for a second <laughs> right. easier so, said than done so whatever that strategy is when i think of cbt it's it's not a therapist saying every week okay that new fear you have you don't have to worry about it. And you know the, the patient going home saying, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that fear. Yeah. Or that worry, right? I just used yeah. the wrong language, right? That worry. But what about worry C now and worry D and worry yes, E, right? Yes, it just keeps on popping up. And so I think CBT is less about talking to patients about, okay, you don't have to worry about that, but cognitive behavioral therapy is identifying distortions in thinking, which is what worry is, right? And finding more accurate uh, cognitions to replace that. Those, those inaccurate cognitions that result in you know, these overwhelming emotions quite often. And so I think that's the whole idea of the compensatory mechanisms is being able to uh, think more rationally about the, that emotional state that your amygdala puts you into and yeah. try and pull yourself out of that. And I think that's also, you'd mentioned those uh, different techniques maybe outside the realm of like modern day medicine, like meditation, these kind of like becoming self-aware leads mm -hmm. to a lot of beneficial treatment plans in I think multiple aspects of psychiatry and I think it really does well and I read a couple articles where meditation seems to and I think not meditation in the sense of like the guru but just focusing on self-awareness and mm -hmm. where is this coming from in me like what potentially a lot of phrases we use nowadays is like what triggered me to think mm -hmm. about this and so I think if we can just become more self-aware and listen to okay so I'm going to have this the rest of my life this is going to be an ebb and flow. How is the best way for me to deal with this without making myself sick? So becoming aware of those moments in life where, hey, I'm feeling a little more on the upside of this ebb and flow, and so maybe I need to readdress this again. I was also impressed with the idea that RTMS focused on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which might strengthen, I suppose in my, my mind, might strengthen that pathway seem to be helpful for people who struggle with generalized anxiety disorder. And that was out of the Epkin article. Yeah. So I, I think I was left with the idea, generally speaking, that if I want to help my patients with generalized anxiety disorder, SSRIs probably are helpful, but there'll probably be more resistance against that than otherwise. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the treatment of choice to help probably probably yeah, strengthen probably. that pathway between the amygdala and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right? And uh, overcome the emotional drivers that are coming from the amygdala and uh, replace those again with more accurate thoughts that have more mediated emotions associated with them. Yeah. And that maybe there are some genes involved in this. I think you mentioned at one time that some of the genes, uh, candidate genes from the GWAS studies might be uh, immune related genes. Yep, there's immunology related in this. There's a whole bunch that they, it was like a huge net of genes that they looked at. 
and until we start getting more convergence between pharmacological outcomes, imaging outcomes, uh, genome-wide association studies, and maybe some biomarkers that are more clear, it's, it's hard to say where treatment will go at the moment. Yeah. But outcomes have been positive um, with studies with the, the kind of combined SSRI, CBT that you're talking about. And people yeah. are finding a way to make their way through life with GAD. And people probably did before those yeah, treatments as well because because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, they're there, that great big uh, pathway between the amygdala and uh, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right? Yeah, and I mean, even just going back to the first part of the podcast, I mean, 350 BC... We got people struggling with this. It's something that's been around for a long time. So people are finding ways to manage it. We just hope eventually we can find one of the key ways to help people feel maybe a little bit more relief. And I suspect maybe this will break out into different kinds of conditions rather than generalized anxiety disorder. And I think further along the line, the DSM will get even more specific for us, which Mm. it has every single time there's a new publication. That's true. Uh, let's see, take-homes. Devin, what's your take-home on generalized anxiety disorder? <laughs> that this is a big monster that we have a lot more to tackle on. And as much as we would like to, you know, have some specific gene mutation, you know, like sickle cell where we can point and say, right there, there's our problem. That's not going to happen. This is This is something just like hypertension or diabetes or heart disease. This is a multifactorial, very complicated uh, condition that we're going to have to tackle on a lot of different fronts and learn a lot more about. It's kind of exciting to learn about the human brain and the human body and the uh, the workings and how the different receptors and molecules and connectivity of those uh, neurons work together. I kind of think that's the exciting part about it. One of the exciting things of being in medicine. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say I kind of echo what Devin said. It's huge. There's a lot about it. But I think the most fascinating thing for me is it wasn't until 1980 that we kind of got this split. And so it's still kind of in its youth almost when it comes to a diagnosis. And so we have so much left. And while it feels ominous to like at the end of a podcast be like, we didn't really find one specific thing about this. The rest of the world sees that and there's a push to figure it out. But I think that's what science is, is do our best with the knowledge that we have, but then keep on going. And that's kind of consistency everywhere. And I'm I'm excited to see how much effort is being made to identify more of the specifics in psychiatry, because I think it will just make us better physicians and better doctors someday. I, I love the science of it. I'm going to say that we actually know some pretty good stuff. So you and I are flipping roles a minute ago. Yeah. You were saying, wait a minute, we have some ways to manage this. It works pretty well. And now I'll say the same thing as my final take home, and that is don't forget CBT. Yes. Don't forget, uh, uh, generally speaking, SSRIs or SNRIs. Uh, there are some caveats to that. Make sure that you're reviewing your board exam or your board exam prep kinds of things. And then just make sure that you can uh, identify the difference between generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder on both the shelf and in practice. And the reason why is because some medications don't help as much with generalized anxiety as they do with depression. Yep. So on that note, team out. Team out. Team out. Thanks, guys.